on the Pilot TV podcast this week, we're joining a sex cult in Sky Documentary's The Vow, heading to a parallel world in Series 2 of the BBC's His Dark Materials, and finally getting to find out what Baby Yoda's been up to over the past year in the triumphant return of The Mandalorian on Disney+. Plus. I have spoken. I'm James Dyer and welcome to the Pilot TV podcast, specifically the last Pilot TV podcast before the impending US election. So, depending on how that goes, we may or may not be back, depending on whether there's a podcast studio on whatever planet we're forced to relocate to. (laughs) And to the listener from Florida who left us a one-star rating this week because of our Trump bashing and quote-unquote woke nonsense, despite saying they liked the show, all I can say is, I'm sorry, but the man is an absolute monster and there's really no getting around it. Uh, Although I will say that you declaring you'll upgrade your one star to a five star review if we agree to change our ways regarding the MAGA masses is arguably the most on-brand Trump thing ever conceived. Anyway... Joining me on the Trump-thumping TV podcast are two Biden bros of no small renown, to wit, notorious snowflake cuck Mr. Boyd Hilton and feminist <laughs> libtard Terry White. How are you both? Oh, that's the nicest thing you've ever said about me. <laughs> mm. I like yes. the way you pronounce it Marga. What, what would you have called it? it? It's like, make, yeah, but it'd be Marga if I was America. American. Yeah, one is, one is like not Margo. American like, or who's, from the North. Who's Margo? What's this Margo <laughs> Margo, Like Margo from Margo. The Good Life. Yeah, Margo, Margo Masses. How do you say Arga, James, as in the cooker? That's a middle class I, I, thing. I, I mean, I'm not yeah. middle class enough to have an Arga, but it would be an Arga, not an Aga. 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 No, that doesn't work at all. Yeah, but it gives it kind of a weird um, sheen of respectability to say Marga. Do you know what I mean? It feels like Maga. Yeah, Maga is the the hard edge. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wearing a Marga hat. Doesn't sound the same. Marga hat. Darling, darling, it's a Marga hat. Yes. Uh, Okay, I got a Borat hat, actually, that said Make America Nice Again, which I rather enjoyed. Um, But at a distance, it just looks like a mugger hat, so I'm never going to wear it. Uh, But speaking of the mugger masses, uh, Terry, it is time for the latest segment that we've introduced to the podcast, Terry's Update on the West Wing. For all of you out there who are Trump supporters, then you're probably not going to enjoy this bit, but carry on, Terry. (laughs) Oh, my God. So I watched another, how many episodes? Ten episodes this week, Um, just to kind of... Continue my um, obsession. I've I've realised that my my life is basically broken into chunks of time, and those chunks of time are work, look after my son, watch The West Wing. <laughs> um, the final two have now met in that um, uh, me and my son watch The West Wing together twice a day. So in the morning, while when we get up before he has his breakfast, and then in the evening um, after he's had his tea. He enjoys it as much as I do. Um, and uh, do you know what? I've been thinking a little bit more about this week about why I like it so much. And, and do you know what I really respect is the kind of narrative ingenuity and innovation and effort put into each episode. So even, you know, thinking about 20 hours in LA, the way that was structured, um, take out the trash day. There's the take this Sabbath day when there's the um, the yes. prisoner who's due to be sentenced on death row. Each one has this incredible structure of its own. That means it stands alone. It's not just like another episode of another um, West Wing. It's each one feels special and unique in its in its own way. And in these ten episodes, I've gone up to um, essentially um, mandatory minimums. Mm. 
So the last two I've just watched are very, very important, as we know, because I watched six meetings before lunch, which included, as we know, the moment that a lot of people shouted at me um, (laughs) when I first started watching this, and I had no idea what they were talking about. And then it was... Alice and Johnny doing <laughs> CJ does the jackal. <laughs> Holy shit. What did I just watch? Um, I did rewind it and watch it multiple times because holy shit, what did I just watch? But then everybody was saying, there was a, a guy on Twitter saying, oh my God, well, the next episode, just prepare yourself, um, which is <laughs> Let Bartlett be Bartlett. And oh my God, like that episode, the end... The, I was in tears at the rousing end. I serve at the pleasure of the president. Oh my God, him getting, you know, this fire in his belly, Leo being let off the leash, the really kind of going for it. And I tell you what, I do see what people mean because there are moments where I was like, you're all so smug and I'm not even sure you're that experienced and actually looking at you in a room, you're really young and and you do think you're geniuses and you do think you're political kind of like heavyweights when arguably you're not. But, oh my God, I love them all. And what I loved about Bartlett B. Bartlett is the end when they're all with Leo and they all go round and say say it in turn. And you know what? It really made me miss the Empire Office because that sense of... Because <laughs> we're just like that. No, that <laughs> Let Terry of... be Terry. I serve <laughs> at the pleasure of the editor. <laughs> well, that sense of people being together and you coming in and you walk, you know, the only thing you have in common with these people, to paraphrase the office, is that you walk on the same piece of carpet for, you know... 8, 10, 12, whatever it is, hours a day. And you are brought together by a common good and a common passion and a common purpose. And if we may not be, you know, in the White House making decisions about <laughs> um, uh, the future of America, but it made me miss being in a place with people where we were all together around a shared passion and a shared belief system and a shared love um and it made me really emotional but it was it was interesting because you know what is it episode 19 of what 22 um by the way really really loads of episodes per series but <laughs> and i wasn't expecting this seismic episode this significant monumental episode just to drop at episode 19 it's not an opener it's not a finale but it's this incredible new kind of fresh fire and air being breathed into this show that I've just already given 18 hours of my life over to. In essence, it continues. And I, I was desperate to get to the end of season one for them before this podcast, but I couldn't, unfortunately, because I had to sleep. Um, but magnificent. And there are things I'm noticing all the time, like Mandy, I'm becoming, you know, a little bit unsure of Mandy. I don't feel like her character's really been built out that well yet. We've obviously had the debacle with the memo she wrote about how you destroyed that specific administration. She's got these hard edges, and I think I said last week, I don't mind them because I think that's how you'd be as a woman in that environment. But I I think I might need a little bit more substance to Mandy's character to start to give a shit about her in a significant way. 
but I couldn't be more in love with the rest of them, like CJ and Sam, and obviously we talked about Toby last week, but Leo, <laughs> the bloody, you know, alcohol and, and pill addiction, that whole, the way they came together for him for that, their loyalty and love, and Jed's got, um, the president's got multiple sclerosis, and the first lady is, like, trying to help him hide it, and, you know, like... His political enemies are just going to use it as a stick to beat him with when they find out, which of course they'll find out because that's how it works. Oh, God, it's just, oh, I mean, and Josh, right? Oh, God, I hate him and I love him and I feel like Donna sometimes and, like, sometimes I think you're Josh and I'm Donna and then sometimes I think, then sometimes I think I'm Josh and you're Donna. Like, I don't know. Like, it's just, it's just magical. Every minute is magical and I can't believe I had this... I didn't have this in my life before. It's wonderful. Oh. Does that make me Toby or... Um, <laughs> you are totally yeah. Toby. Leo? Totally no, Toby. No, you're Toby. Yeah. You're totally yeah. Toby. Yeah. I, I liked. I always thought that. that it would be me who would cause people to stop listening to this podcast by banging on about the West Wing. <laughs> but actually, surprise of all things, it's actually not. <laughs> Boyd, how's your uh, how's your Battlestar Galactica rewatch going? Oh, it stopped. Um, what do you mean it stopped? It stopped at, well, I'm, You're I'm a busy man. I've got yeah. I have. I need. I need to do a Terry and parcel out like you know two episodes a day. But I haven't got a small baby to to bring up. So it's probably. I think probably that enables the that mm-hmm. structure, doesn't it, to some extent? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, although I have got Baby Yoda plush oh, dolls, so maybe that can not pretend. talk about yeah, the sorry. fact that they sent you a Baby Yoda plush, and I <laughs> as yet. Remain without one, but as uh, yet, I'm thank sure you, you'll Disney. get one. I'm <laughs> sure you'll get one. Anyway, um, uh, no, I haven't been watching Battlestar. I will go back to it. Honestly, I will go back to it. I got up to about season four, um, but um, what I've been watching, which I guess is what you're moving on to, subtly, <laughs> uh, before this turns into the other West Wing podcast, the other West Wing weekly podcast, which is fine, which is great. Um, I so I've caught up with the Queen's Gambit, which was ah, the yes, um, I was yes. hoping you'd have watched that. Yeah. This was the Netflix um, miniseries that we didn't have time to... It, it arrived in a very busy week. And to be honest, Netflix didn't Also, really we didn't get episodes, did we? So. Particularly. Well, I, no, but I, I mean, it may not be their fault. I don't know. It's one of those things. It didn't... It didn't... It, didn't, it, it was very late in the day that they alerted um, people to the fact that it was arriving late October or wherever. But it's really fucking good, is the bottom line. It's... it's um, It does star Anya Taylor-Joy, who was always in, who's always incredible. She's fucking brilliant. As Beth Harmon, who was a real-life um, chess phenomenon um, in the 50s and 60s. The drama opens in classic style in 1967, which is as far as it goes, and when she's about to take part in a huge chess event, and then it flashes back to her childhood when she becomes an orphan, where the mother's involved in a car crash, and she's sent to this orphanage for young girls where they, where they feed them kind of drugs to keep them kind of docile, and that's that launches a lifelong issue with drugs and um, various... Um, and, uh, various addictions that she has going through her life while she becomes this incredible chess prodigy when she's like nine, ten years old and when she meets um, Bill Camp, the brilliant Bill Camp from The Night Of. He played the lawyer in The Night Of. I don't remember. He's phenomenal. Or detective, sorry, the detective. And he is the math, is the chess playing person who befriends her like in the basement of their, of the children's home and he teaches her to play chess and he's phenomenal. And it's just, it's on, it's really, um, it's seven episodes. It's very tightly uh, the narrative is very tight. It's not too long. 
It's it's got a real snap to it. The storytelling is beautiful to look at. It's got some occasional cheesy moments, like she she imagines the chess. She kind of looks up into the, at the ceiling and imagines playing chess, kind of in in a weird <laughs> that with their way of visualizing her obsession with chess. It's slightly clunky, I thought, but it's really really a really quality piece of work. And um, it's one of those things. That if this probably if this had been on, you know, BBC One on Sunday nights for seven weeks, it would be a huge huge thing for them, and everyone would be obsessed with it. It's just another really good Netflix show. Um, and it's a limited series, so it's not like yeah. there's no issue of it being cancelled. <laughs> it is just a really good, a really, really good show. Yeah, um, so that's that. The Queen's Gambit. And I wanted to quickly mention Max, which is the other show that we didn't have time for last week, which is O.T. Fag Benley's um, comedy which was originally going to air on E4 back in the spring, then they took it off air, and now it's on Channel 4 every Thursday, and it's really outrageous. It's got a little bit of um, Michaela Cole quality to it, and that more like the, in the chewing gum days when she did very bold, like almost cartoony, colourful visuals matched to very, very um, outrageous kind of dealings with, with sexuality and sex itself. And um, there's loads of that in it. It's And OT is really funny as a massive bellend, huge, gigantic ex-boy band bellend. And Christopher Maloney, as I mentioned last week, is in it as who's brilliant as this ridiculous American manager. And in episode two, there's an amazing threesome scene with OT, <laughs> Christopher Maloney and his crazy wife, who's a bit like Melania Trump. Well, you know how I feel about unrealistic threesomes, Boyd. I know. <laughs> this is a realistic threesome. This is a realistic threesome. Okay, fine. Well, that's absolutely fine. Uh, what have I been watching this week? I have finished season one of Counterpart. Now, I talked a bit about this last week. Counterpart, of course, being the show where J.K. Simmons plays himself and, of course, himself in two parallel dimensions, where which cross over, obviously, in Berlin. And there's a building where you can cross over from one dimension to the other. And so there's two versions of him in it. One, you know, sort of assuming civilian and the other one a hardcore spy. It's very, very different. But this show is so fucking good. Like, I'm watching it. And the more I'm watching it, I, I, this isn't just, oh, I'm quite enjoying this. It's a bit trashy. This is genuinely like A-grade, top-level quality television i cannot believe there are only two seasons of this unless it you know wraps up perfectly and that's the way you know who knows i'm only finished season one haven't got season two yet but it's so so good so many good people in it harry lloyd is excellent in this nazanin boniardi um nicholas pinnock's in it it's just really really good cast but it's it's incredibly sort of dense spycraft. There's lots going on, you know, working out who's who. And sometimes, you know, it's quite difficult to work out who, which side you're on. They actually do it very well because they do it all through characterization. Because so often with this kind of show, you'd think they'd use like a different lens filter, you know, to show one reality and the other, just like a visual cue to, to let you know, like in shorthand, where you are. And this doesn't really do that. It's just a case of remembering, you know, how characters are behaving. And they do do a thing where you tend to get different characters on each side but really really good espionage thriller with a little bit of a sci-fi dystopian twist it also features a kind of uh, a foreshadowing of the pandemic because on one of the realities there's been a deadly swine flu outbreak and so everyone wears masks all the time and they're all washing their hands and sterilizing them in these uv lights and obviously that's our normal now so it doesn't look as weird as i guess it did when the show first came out but um prescient and extremely good counterpart i highly recommend it i've also been watching the new season of a very exciting show but i'm not allowed to talk about it but i've done a lot of that so that's me being a smug <laughs> twat so my god you're one of those insufferable dicks yes i'm one of those insufferable <laughs> yeah. dicks Funnily normally enough. void gets yeah. to be the insufferable dick oh, with no. these things but it's uh it's me in this instance <laughs> 
Right, right, right. Terry, I'm assuming you have watched nothing but The West Wing, so... Yeah, I mean, The West Wing. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> let's move on now to this week's listener question, which comes from George at Gorge, uh, and who has, you know, adhered to the new rules of this question and says, for the no Buffy slash West Wing slash Friends question challenge, what's the best and worst follow-up project to a major hit show? E.g. Newsroom, after West Wing, equals bad. Leftovers, after Lost, equals good. I mean... Two things. One, you've actually mentioned the West Wing in the question, which rather defeats the object. And also, the newsroom, I think you found, was not the show he did after the West Wing. It was, in fact, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, which is equally flawed, but I really like it. Anyway, who wants to start? Yeah, I, I was going to say that. The... I, I think you're fine. I think you're fine. I think you're fine. I think you're fine. many. I think you'll find. Yeah, I think you'll find he's right, though, that Studio 60, which I wanted to love, I absolutely wanted to love. And um, I actually interviewed him um, uh, for that on in, the Edinburgh TV Festival. Yeah, have I told you this story? Yeah, on no. a satellite in front of 300 people. And I had to interview him on a big screen. And it was quite stressful. And he was really lovely, to be fair. And it was all about Studio 60. And um, it was kind of, it was, I, I, I kind of enjoyed it to start with, and I just didn't sustain. There was something about it could not sustain a kind of big long season i didn't think well, i think show. it that went off that... the boy he got into it, there were networks wranglings which i think yeah. partly caused it to they wanted it to be something different and the show kind of did go downhill in the second half of the of that one season yeah. but i think also it yeah. came out the same year as 30 rock which was you know on the face of, of it a slightly similar subject matter also i think everyone's interested in a kind of uh you know workplace drama about about politics in the White House, that's inherently interesting. You know, it's a bit inside baseball to go behind the scenes of creating a variety TV show. It's maybe yeah. not as accessible, but it's still got great writing, still good. Not only that, but to kind of have a uh, have the same level of self-importance about <laughs> yeah. creating yeah, this sketch is. show as you would about changing the world of politics in the <laughs> West Wing. It had the same kind of, you know, everything like ratcheted up yeah. to the max, wasn't it? It was like, this is all really, really important. Well, it's not really. I mean, you know, and in fact, that's why 30 Rock felt the, the better tone to deal with the making of a sketch show dealt with in ludicrously stupid, silly sitcom terms. Yeah, I know what you mean. I, like, I, I, I also, it's one of these things, especially in that first episode, like talk about setting yourself up for a fall where the whole episode is about trying to write the best episode of television ever. And then you kind of have to show it. Yes. So you're, you're really yes. building up like this would better be the best thing ever because you're writing it and you've said it's going to be. Um, but yeah, I, I did enjoy it. I thought it was funny and, and it, it dealt with a lot of the same themes actually that deals with on the West Wing as well you know the fact that uh, the Sarah Paulson's character is kind of an evangelical Christian and that becomes a kind of source of you know uh, of some of the drama Timothy Busfeld in it you know all the great Sorkin players um, but yeah I like uh, I like it a lot um, I would like to say uh, Joey ha you thought you were going to get away oh, with friends yes. oh, absolutely no. yes. not so I think what we can all agree is that Joey is literally one of the worst TV shows ever made and also, by that very nature, one of the worst kind of, uh, what are we calling them? Spin-offs? Follow-ups. You know, follow-ups. Joey goes to LA, so he's got none of the other friends. And let's be honest, which of those friends could actually hold their own sitcom is a very good question because it's the tapestry of the different characters mm. and their dynamic and all of that that actually makes friends so successful. Just Joey all the time is not funny. Like, that's just the reality. It was not funny. Moving to LA, tapping into all that kind of, you know, the superficiality of the acting world and how... Oh, oh, no. 
No, it was terrible. absolutely terrible, wasn't it? And yeah. I remember the funny thing about it was in 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 this country it was Channel Five, wasn't it? And they mm. they were so excited about it because at that point you know it was a fairly new young channel. They didn't really have any any hits particularly. I don't think anyone was that. And they were like, "This is going to be the making of us. We've got the right stuff, <laughs> fucking Joey." And it was absolute <laughs> shit. No. It was awful. Oh yeah. dear, yeah, that was pretty bad. But uh, Boyd, I'm sure that you, I mean, he mentions the leftovers. That's yeah. a pretty fucking good oh, shout, isn't it? A hundred percent. Not only is Damon Lindelof went from Lost to the leftovers, which was incredible. Then he then went to Watchmen. Yeah. So he's done a double um, a, a masterpiece situation after Lost. And I have my issues with Lost, particularly the, the final season and everything. But I mean, there's no denying it was a game-changing... It changed the face of particularly network television Lost. It was mm. absolutely incredible. That year when Lost and Desperate Housewives came out and were like, it was a whole new world on ABC, incredible boldness right there, their creative, um, the creative freedom they gave to these shows with huge budgets and everything. That was an unbelievable time. Um, but then for Damon Lindelof to then come up with um, The Leftovers, absolutely incredible. And I do think The Leftovers is, is, is as I've said many times, is in the top five, top 10 shows of all time. Mm. Yeah, I agree with you. What about bad ones? What have you got for bad ones? Oh, loads of them. Baywatch Nights. Oh, Baywatch Nights. I mean, <laughs> yes. Baywatch was hardly a fucking masterpiece, was it? But yeah, Baywatch Nights Baywatch was... Baywatch had a purpose and had an audience and um, <laughs> never quite got the idea of uh, setting it around solving mysteries at night, it's... but there you go. <laughs> Baywatch meets the X-Files was not kind of what people had in mind. No. It went a bit super supernatural, didn't it? Yes, yes, it did. <laughs> it went absolutely deranged. Um, and I would also mention... The Carrie Diaries, which were obviously, um, it was oh, the yeah. next one after Sex and the City and was Carrie's younger life as a girl. Because actually, the interesting thing about Carrie's character in Sex and the City is you know very little about her background, where she's from, her parents. None of that is actually weirdly for a show that ran for so many years, <laughs> delved into. Um, and then, the which really is quite exciting because the world you can create is pretty much anything apart from it wasn't, it was kind of... Uh, very light and very frothy and uh, short on laughs and became, I think, mainly about shoes, which people always thought Sex and the City was about, but it actually wasn't about shoes. It was about so much more than that. And the shoes were the Trojan horse in which the issues of the day were taken to task. Um, so that was another poor one. I only have poor ones. I've got to be frank. Wow. And then Darren Starr also, of course, cre- went on to create Emily in Paris, which is about shoes, effectively. <laughs> yes, um, yes. There is no Trojan horse. <laughs> There's no Trojan horse. He's gone literal. No. Yes. Um, yeah, I think you've done that. That that is. It's easier to do to do good ones, I think. But I mean, there are um, a bunch of different ones. Like David Milch went from NYPD Blue to Deadwood, and both of those are pretty iconic, aren't they? You know, you can't really beat that. Mm. But on, hang on, hang on, hang on. You can't just do the next shows they did. I mean, isn't that what the question is? No. So, jo- like Joey is a character from Friends. Oh, no. That's a follow-up. Oh no, he means follow-up projects, like the next project yeah, they did, he, yeah. not not related oh. your, projects. Your, your answer is, is is better and more um in a way, but it's a limited it's a limited field, so it's isn't it? Yeah, he is it's literally like what showrunners did, did next. Yes. Yes. Yeah, the next isn't project. The yeah. question. The question is <laughs> hey, follow-up shows. The follow-up examples shows he used were West Wing Newsroom, yeah. Lost Leftovers. <laughs> Those are the literally yeah. the examples of the question. Oh sorry. I think you'll find. I think you'll find. 
Yeah. It's literally just which show did they do next? Oh, bloody hell, let's get the IMDb out. It's way more interesting to do follow up shows. Wow. That's why I was banging on about Joey so much. Oh, God. I lost this yeah, to Trump supporter. You've now lost us, George. This is, this is terrible. <laughs> well, in answer to that oh, question, great. to Terry's version of the question, then Frasier following off from Cheers is fucking amazing as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a good challenge. That's the, probably the best example. That is a good challenge. Right? The total very triumph. Good yeah. Question. A <laughs> very good question. Um, okay, well, to answer the actual question, I don't know, like, Kurt Sutter went from Sons of Anarchy to the Bastard Executioner, which was an unfortunate misstep for him. Although he did kind of bring it back to an extent with Mines before he got fired. Um, Vince Gilligan went from Breaking Bad to Battle Creek, that slightly odd procedural show, which didn't last very long. Um, but then he well, went so to we Better Call Saul, oh, well, which is a Sorry, game. but this question is flawed. I'll tell you why else this question is flawed. Because there's a, there's a belief here that it's like, oh, I've done this thing, and then what thing am I going to choose next? What makes sense in my career based on what I've just done? Most people have signed on for the next two shows before that show has even aired. So it's just by the look of the gods, whatever they do after the big success, right? It's like there's no rhyme or reason or rhythm to this question. This question is nonsense. I think what you mean to say, Terry, is you were disgusted when Joss Whedon went from Buffy the Vampire Slayer to The Dollhouse, which was nowhere near as good. <laughs> My point being that the the really boring realities of making TV is that you don't sit there, have a hit and go, ooh, this is going to open loads of new doors for me now. What that means is you're going to get to make a good show in two years' time, not that the next thing you do in three months is going to be good. Anyway. Well, I mean, it's a fair point. It's a fair point. Destroy I the have question, got, but... You have destroyed the question, effectively. I've got a, point, a question, though, for James, which is um, the the lone gunman, right, which was the follow-on from... To, the spin-off in, in, thing. In the, the Terry version yeah. of this question. Yes, <laughs> The yes. X-Files. I only remember ever watching one episode of that, but was it any good? Was it... No. Was it, was it, but what I no, would okay, say fine. is rather than latch onto the lone gunman, I would instead latch onto Millennium, which Chris Carter did while the X-Files right. were still on. Yeah. And in fact, there was a crossover episode. Millennium, I thought, was fucking great. I do not know if I bansheed it or not. I will check the document. If I haven't, I will do it at some later point. But Millennium was uh, Lance Henriksen is this guy, slightly yeah. psychic guy, who consulted with this group called the Millennium Group. And uh, it was Terry O'Quinn as kind of Peter Watts, who was kind of the, the sort of figurehead of that that he dealt with. And the Millennium Group would sort of have him as a consultant. And he would he would consult with law enforcement on... It started off as sort of serial killer stuff. There was supernatural stuff in there as well. But it was fucking dark. It was really, really bleak. And a great theme tune as well. Um, but there were only, I want to say, three seasons of it. But it was one of these things where it was whole. It was hinged around the fact that as we drew closer to the millennium, things were going to get more and more crazy. But of course, by that very nature, you have a built-in expiration for this show. And so they tried to introduce this concept of, oh, actually, that's not the real millennium. And they had two factions, the owls and the roosters. And the roosters were saying that 2000 was the millennium. And the owls were saying, actually, the real millennium is further on. And it just it became very confusing. It became utter nonsense. Uh, and it died on its ass. But it was really good. Lance Henriksen was great. And I would say that, you know, I enjoyed that as much as The X-Files when it was first on. I thought it was great. So, yeah. But no, didn't enjoy the Langham By the way, I think you'll find that um, Vince Gilligan's follow-on from Breaking Bad was Better Call Saul, not Battle Creek. Better Call Saul was on air before Battle Creek, quite rightly. And Better Call Saul is the supreme example right. answer right. to the question. I'll let it you is, off. It, it is possibly even better than Breaking Bad. See, I, see, and, and I've said this many times I, at some point possibly when it's over I will sit down and watch all of Better Call Saul but I watched the whole of season yep. one of Better Call Saul and enjoyed it but wasn't sucked in like it didn't grip me yeah no it, wouldn't, so, it, it doesn't get it, it gets tremendously brilliant kind of two three seasons two and three kind of and then becomes one of the best things ever seasons four and five 
No, I, I will guess that. You're right. That's that's a good one. And another bad one I will mention is Bo Willimon, obviously House of Cards to the first, oh, aka yes. sitting in boardrooms the series, uh, which was the yeah. least exciting oh, Martian God. series I've ever seen. Right. Was blow, Sorry, George, yeah. for Terry liberally urinating all over your question. I hope you are not mortally offended by that. If you would like your question destroyed by Terry on the Pilot TV podcast, then feel free to send it to me on social media or to the official Pilot TV podcast Twitter account at Pilot TV Pod via direct message. Shall we move on now to this week's news? And we begin with news that Ted Lasso has got a season three, even though we haven't seen season two yet. So Jason Sudeikis' charms, lost on absolutely no one except for Terry White, uh, seem to have la- landed him a third season. Terry, are you psyched for this? Are you stoked? No. <laughs> no. No, you're not. This would be the new West Wing, honestly. When you start watching this show, (laughs) you'll be like, like, in about three years' time. I can't believe I didn't have Ted Lasso in my my life. Are you kidding me? Three years' time. American no. unfunny guy comes to the UK. It's not. It's brilliant. Like, it's brilliant. <laughs> Emily Nussbaum, the greatest TV critic in the world on the New Coast, just discovered it this week. I was so excited. And she's like, oh, yeah, it's really fucking good. I, was like, yes, I don't agree with all of her opinions normally. So no, no, nor do I. I'm just saying. You don't have to agree um, with her opinions. I'm just saying. I'm just trying to think of ways of encouraging you to Oh, it's be never going to happen. It brilliant. is never going to happen. Never going to happen. Never going to happen. <laughs> never gonna happen. But anyway. I'll tell you what. I, I, so <laughs> the Crown trailer dropped this week and it's amazing. I think it is the best Crown trailer ever. Um, it's kind of half Thatcher and half Diana. So it opens with narration by Gillian Anderson, who, oh my God, she has totally nailed Thatcher's voice and presence and poise. And there's very much there's this interesting tension between her and the Queen. And then it's like a trailer of two halves. And then you get Diana being introduced and the whole kind of drama with Charles playing out. It's a jam-packed trailer and it's right. We're really getting to the juicy stuff now. Thinking about dramas and scandals and things in our lifetime that we all remember happening. Um, it looks incredible. I can't wait to see it. I was kind of like me a little bit about um, The Crown because I found the last season quite mixed. After having seen that trailer, I am fully in. I'm ready. I'm raring to go. Gillian Anderson. It's gonna be that is gonna be you know an award winning thing. I predict just from the trailer. Just from the trailer, she I is, mean. she embodies Thatch. <laughs> And I think, and you're right, that kind of, that tension between the Queen and Thatcher was just fam- that was a, f- a famously a thing at the time. I remember living, kind of living through that. A <laughs> whole idea was, is fascinating. These two gargantuan women um, running, you know, running the country. Um, that is going to be incredible. But I think the harder job, I think it's very interesting to see um, the Diana elements to it as well, because that's such a hard job, isn't it, playing Diana? You know, we've yeah. seen some terrible films and miniseries, yeah. yes. which have just Naomi been... Naomi Watts, you are still not yeah. <laughs> Oh, my God, it was fucking t- dreadful. So I think Emma Corrin's got the harder job, really, because mm. Diana's such a... It's, it's just a, such a difficult thing to capture. That You know, she's got that famous look, that kind of, you know, with the hair and the look, the kind of doe eyes and everything. But to make it, I don't know, to, to, to not slip into cliché about yeah. that is going to be hard. But and, and the other interesting thing about it is, of course, that Peter Morgan's already covered a lot of this in, in the film The Queen, mm. um, which is going to be interesting how, how he deals with the fact that he's dealt with half of this already, in a way. But I'm, it, I mean, is I'm it the excited. biggest problem with Diana that she mm. was and remains one of the most photographed yeah. and filmed yeah. women 
So apart from a Kardashian, you know, nobody got the wall-to-wall coverage that Diana got. So how she looked, especially, I think, is imprinted on our brains. I think when she died, they said she was the most photographed woman in history. And so we all have this very set view of what Diana looked like, how she moved. Um, And there's definitely kind of a, for me, in the trailer, dramatically excited me. But there's definitely a bit of a hurdle to get over, I think, for Emma Corrin in terms of um, how much she looks like her. And it's difficult, yeah. right? Because it isn't yeah. about, oh, she look, that should, that isn't how you cast people. Oh, she looks a lot like Diana. But with Gillian Anderson, there's something in the way she um, iterates that character on screen when it comes to Thatcher, where you feel like she is Thatcher. And yeah. I wasn't quite getting the same sense with with Emma Corrin, but it'll be interesting yeah, to I, watch I agree, the full yeah, episode. Same, same yeah. So that's, that's a small. That's a, think of that as a small trailer of, like, of next week's show, when we will in fact <laughs> be reviewing the Crown yes. properly. Now, now explain to me. So, so it's Emma Corrin. So when are we seeing Elizabeth Debicki as Diana? When's that happening? Next the season one after, five. The season after. Yeah. Where so in a year's will, time. So she will yeah. grow. That was the end of Diana's life, right? So we meet her here. Yeah. She's a teenager. I say. So when she met Charles, she was what? Yeah, that's right. 1920, yeah. yeah. Um, and so you meet the teenage Diana, um, who was very different. She did a nanny, um, quite innocent, really not very worldly wise. Those early days of the marriage and the woman that Diana was when she died, when she was what, 36? Seven thirty-eight. Um, t- her mother had kind of been through the ringer with the royal family. had had gone out on her own. You know, was was spoken of in very different terms, manipulating the press and being a very different kind of character. I think it makes sense almost to have those two different mm. actresses tackling those two yeah. different versions of her, the girl, and then the woman she became. Who is four feet taller than the girl that she was. <laughs> interesting. And she certainly grows up in every conceivable sense. Um, yes, this is interesting because I watched, I, like, I don't watch The Crown. <laughs> I think we've reviewed it on here and I may have watched an episode to review it. I haven't watched it since. I think I watched the first episode of season one. I watched whatever we reviewed last time. So I will be jumping in cold. Am, am I going to be fine? Am I going to, is it going to be oh, good? Of course you're going to be fine. <laughs> Do I need to find out I mean, what happened? Like, <laughs> no, it's not like fucking Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the Cylon boy? Tell me who the Cylons are. Just bring me up to speed. Well, <laughs> Prince Philip. There's no canon, don't worry. Right, no, no, I don't need to no, yeah. consult the official yeah. Crown canon. Fine, okay. Well, we'll no, look forward to that no, next I... week when we have seen the new season of The Crown. You know what we won't see a new season of? Brave New World, because that has been cancelled after one season. And I am unshocked by this development, if I'm honest with you. I did not like it particularly. Deeply unshocked. But one thing I am a little upset about is I don't think we're getting any more Mind Hunters either. David Finch has essentially said that that's probably not going to happen. It's not so much been cancelled, except I think it takes an awful lot to do and he doesn't have the time to do it and maybe seems to have lost interest a touch. Uh, obviously, he's been making man. I mean, I could never... Yeah, I love Mindhunter, but I could never work out how he, how he would... I mean, he hasn't done a film for, for, for four or five years, to be fair. Yeah. But... Um, yeah, it's, it's it's he's so meticulous, mm. isn't he? Like, how, yeah, and he doesn't direct a, a, all of it, but he directs some of it and mm. works on it, you know, very closely. I, I could never work out how he was going to find time to do a recurring show like that year after mm. year, anyway. And clearly, he's not going to. Well, yeah, so, fair he said he doesn't think he has it in him. But also, I think they probably wanted to do it slightly cheaper because it's a very expensive show, yeah. and I don't think it has that many viewers. He's- so. He's a, when it comes to budgets, because that's what that's what happened with um, Utopia. He left Utopia because he couldn't agree the budget, mm. um, and and they wanted to. And it's, he's he's very he's he's resilient when it comes to that, and uncompromising. 
Yeah, Fair I enough. mean, you say that, but like Dennis Kelly managed to make Utopia for like 50p and a packet of crisps, and it's oh, amazing. And then, of course, we got the version that Gillian Flynn did, and it was not. So, you know, money isn't everything. Money isn't everything. Mm. Um, mm. Did we Wise see words, James? Yes. Thank you, boy. Mm. Thank you, boy. That's, that's, that's the Yoda in me. In lieu of an actual plush baby Yoda, which they have not sent me, I'm giving you Yoda wisdom instead. <laughs> Uh, oh my god, I can't believe you just pulled that for not sending you a free I am bitter that I have not been sent a baby Yoda and Boyd has. Like yeah. this is this is a slight I will not get over. So spoilt. <laughs> um speaking of Disney, uh did you see Oscar Isaac has maybe been linked with Moon Knight, the Moon Knight series? Yeah. <laughs> Boy, what is like, that yeah, I don't <laughs> I, I did, but I can't remember what the series is. <laughs> Moon Knight, Moon Knight. It's Moon Knight. Moon Knight is a character. It's like a okay. knight who comes out under the... I don't know anything about him. No, I know who Moon Knight is to look at, but I don't really know an awful lot about the story. I've never read the Moon Knight comics, but it, there's, there is a potential uh, to see Oscar Isaac in the Moon Knight cowl. Uh, whether or not that is exciting probably depends on whether or not you like Moon Knight, but Oscar Isaac is always good. So I'm saying that's a plus. He is. Sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. Sorry, like, sure. sure. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Can't wait to hear you Did review you that, Joe. Frost? Is keeping busy, isn't he? Because he's going to be the male lead in the next series of Why Women Kill, which we also didn't have time to review on the show, but is on Alibi, still on Alibi in this country, that channel. And it's a really interesting anthology about, you know, looking at Why Women Kill. And he plays a, a, a 1940s husband with a secret hobby. <laughs> we don't know what it is. And his wife, played by Alison Tolman, is oblivious, and it's all going to be very dark and interesting. A secret hobby. Is it World of Warcraft? Yeah, it's World of Warcraft, yeah. So, but I'm fascinated that Nick Frost does lots of different interesting projects. And, you know, he's just done Truth Seekers, obviously, which we disagreed about last week. And now he's doing this. Wow. Exciting times. Terry, you haven't brought up the Ava DuVernay news, which is quite on brand for you. Why is that? What Ava DuVernay news, James? She has cast, because, you know, she's doing the Colin Kaepernick limited series. Uh -huh. She has cast in the role of young Colin, Jaden Michael, who is actually extremely good in Vampires vs. the Bronx, which is on Netflix recently. And we were talking about that when we talked about it on the Empire podcast. We said, oh, I'm very excited to see what he will do next. And this, this Terry, is what he will do next. Oh, my God. Good talk. Right. Uh, <laughs> and she, and Ava, Ava DuVernay confirmed she's directing at least the first episode, isn't she? Mm. I think, which is, I think it was just yes. news. Yes. That's news. good. That is yeah. good news. Uh, also, in other news that Terry will be mega excited about, Netflix are developing a live action Assassin's Creed TV series. Oh, Christ. <laughs> did, we the, did we not learn from the movie? The movie that was what to be the first, was meant to be the first of many movies and remains only the first movie for very good reason yeah it wasn't the best it wasn't the best and i and i say that as the person who gave it three stars but uh what but then but then think about this terry think about this terry that the latest assassin's creed game is assassin's creed valhalla which is all about vikings so maybe maybe this will be a live action assassin's creed viking show and that will be oh, there'll good. be canutes everywhere and it'll be brilliant even even better good mm. great yeah. So Apple, there's, a, there's what sounds like an exciting new show being worked on for Apple um, TV Plus called Platonic. So this is Seth Rogen and Rose Byrne, who obviously have been in the Bad Neighbours movies together, are very funny together, have great chemistry. Nick Stoller, who um, directed the movies, is behind this new show with them. Um, as you guessed from the title, Platonic, apparently they're friends 
with issues. Um, Nick Stoller um, is working on it with his wife, who's also his creative partner, Francesca Del Banco. Um, and there's a 10 ep order, apparently. But I think they're great together. I think they're dead, dead, dead funny. Um, and I think a couple of these shows really landing for Apple um, TV Plus, you know, rounding out like The Morning Show and, and Servant, which we talked about last week, is coming back in January, which we're very, very, very excited by having a really great comedy with a bit of dram in there. Um, I'm not going to say rom-com, but I think this could be good. I'm excited. Mm. As you can yeah. tell, Boyd and I are equally excited. Um, <laughs> I am. Yeah. I am. <laughs> Fucking, we get Assassin's Creed via the way of Vikings, and it's like you've like literally up to your knees in your own semen, and like oh. talk about how oh, talk about Thanks for that. Thanks for that. Thank you so much. Yeah. So I tried to find a way to say dead excited, wow. and that's all I could come up with on the hop. That's wow. upsetting. Yeah. Um, that is Christ, really upsetting. Let's move on. Narcos Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> Narcos Mexico has been renewed for a third season, but it will be without <laughs> Diego Luna, so he will not be returning for season what three. Is, why? Is he too busy? I. Don't know, to be honest. He hasn't said, but he's not coming back. Yeah, so, he must you know. be. He must be. That feels like does, a, that feels like a loss, doesn't it? It does feel like a loss. Yeah, but he does do loads of films and stuff, doesn't he? So, he does. Yeah, he's, he's I mean, busy. He's busy. Do you think it's related to his Cassian Andor commitments? Oh uh, yeah, probably mm -hmm. right. So that's, that's still filming. Yeah, so I you think, would think you know, maybe he doesn't have time to fit in the both of them. So perhaps it's yeah. Cassian related. But perhaps not. Yeah. Boyd, what were you going to say? I was going to say, um, in treatment, you know, in the HBO season, yeah. which was mm. Gabriel Byrne, yeah, which was great, by the way, um, back in the day. And when weird format, they were a really it. weird format. Because wasn't it on yeah. every single day of the week and each day was like a different appointment with a different yeah. patient? So like you could just watch Tuesdays or just watch Thursdays. Very strange. Yeah. Well, now they've got, so um, they cost um, Uzo Aduba, who was Crazy Eyes in Orange is the New Black. Mm, she's great. And she's going to be the therapist um, wrestling with her own issues as well as other people's. And there'll be three patients, they're saying. So it'll focus closely on. Uh, but I just think it was a really good format and um, she's brilliant. And uh, I think that's a good idea. Okay. Well, any other news before we close the book on this? Excellent. No. Uh, I think Nicole Kidman's doing another show at Amazon. It's an adaptation of a play called Things I Know to Be True by uh, Andrew Bavell. There you go. That's the last bit of news what's, for you. What's it about? Is it another, like, kind of It centres on a married couple crime. called Bob and Fran yeah. <laughs> as they watch their adult children make shocking decisions that will change the course of their lives and explores the resilience of an enduring marriage and how familial love can evolve. Okay. She's loving her TV projects though, isn't she? Is, she? she is. She's having a big old TV time at the moment. Um have you have you have you watched all of have you watched the final undoing yet, Boyd, without any spoilers? No, they haven't sent it. No, you no, haven't got I've it. I've only yet. got okay. the I've got the fifth, yeah. Have you got it? No, no, I haven't. I was just curious. Oh, I was gonna say, yeah. No, no. I, I am ex I mean, even though we we kind of trashed it, <laughs> I'm really excited <laughs> to see the ending. I really need to know what fucking happens. <laughs> Yeah, no, I can't. I tried to continue watching it this week, um, but decided to watch The West Wing, obviously. But yeah, I'm definitely going to watch the. I'm definitely mm. going to keep watching it. I cannot fault your choices. Um, even though I don't like it. 
<laughs> hate watch. I hate watch. Um, shall we move on to this week's reviews? And we begin, as we should have done last week, but we're unable to, with The Mandalorian Season 2, a show that is so fresh, we literally watched it an hour ago as it dropped today, Friday, as we record, as no advanced press screeners were made available. So this is the triumphant return of Pedro Pascal's masked bounty hunter, but more importantly, of Baby Yoda, the cutest critter in the galaxy, as you can see, because Boyd has one. Uh, Mando returns after the climactic events at the end of season one, but there are more obstacles for him to deal with yet. Now, I will say at this point that Empire Magazine is doing episode by episode spoiler special podcasts of The Mandalorian, and we are in fact recording the first one of those later on today. So we will not have any spoilers in this particular review of the mandalorian we will sort of skirt around them um but if you do want us to get really in the weeds about the first episode and there is a lot to talk about which we won't be able to on this show but if you do then do sign up to the empire spoiler special podcast uh which you can subscribe to at glow.fm slash empire film uh and you can hear us every week in your ears talking about all the spoilers from the mandalorian there but in the meantime let's do a spoiler free review of this first episode boyd is the force still strong with this one Yes. Oh, my God. I love this show. I mean, I think I really liked season one, and I think it had, you know, it was eight episodes, and it has a kind of, it does have a kind of procedural story of the week, you know, um, structure to it. So, well, the bigger arc is Mando um, uh, looking after baby yoda the child aka the child it's actual the actual character's name um and obviously that's the that's the big story the overall story but along the way he visits different places and basically gets involved with the locals and there's like a mini crisis or a big crisis as in (laughs) this opening episode for him to help and deal with and grapple with while he then moves on to the next place so it's a it's a very um it's a it's a classic tv serial structure really um but i thought within that within the confines of that and perhaps helped by the confines of that it was so beautifully done um visually the way it echoed you know the very first star wars films the original trilogy you know there are shots that echo um uh, the star wars itself the way the the the, just the beautiful that beautiful kind of father-son relationship between the mandalorian and the child is just so cute and sweet and moving and every reaction shot from Baby Yoda is extraordinary. The, the the expressions they get out of that mm-hmm. character is are fantastic. The dead the kind of deadpan wit and comedy of the character of the Mandalorian um, himself, I think, is so brilliantly done. And that I felt that was like ratcheted up in this first episode. There's some very funny little moments where he's being incredibly deadpan whilst helping with this challenge. That is that is set where he, where he when he arrives with Baby Yoda for this next stage of the journey, so to speak. I'm trying not to do any spoilers. So, and I think in this uh, first episode, which was written and directed by John Favreau, he did a brilliant job of reminding you of the Western um, origins of Star Wars itself. There's there's so many Western vibes going on in this episode. You know, like literally walking into an empty saloon and all of that, and the, and the fact that the Mandalorian himself really is a Clint Eastwood character. You know, people compare mm. people compare him to um, to Jack Reacher, but I think it's more the Clint Eastwood man with no name um, figure of um, those classic spaghetti westerns and beyond that reminds me of. And he does absolutely brilliant. Pedro Pascal just purely in the voice does a brilliant job with that. The detail, the references. So I think people get. 
worry about how many how it's going to refer to and fit into the Star Wars universe, and they get quite anxious about it, and for, with perhaps good reason, considering a lot of people have issues with how the um, films played out in the end and all of that, and J.J. Abrams. But I think they do they're doing a really really good job of making it very fulfilling for fans to see those references and to bring back elements from the original Star Wars films and yet not go over the top with it and still retain the mm. premise of this series, which is something in itself is very, very enjoyable, entertaining. And this episode, which is, I think, the longest episode so far, it's nearly an hour long. Um, I just think it looks incredible. I mean, every episode looks like it costs $200 million. And yet, <laughs> if you watch the making of stuff, it's it, they have a brilliant way of filming it using modern technology that makes it not that expensive apparently but it looks fucking lush and incredible and epic in this episode this isn't a spoiler but they they it, one of the big the big climactic um action scene it's moves at aspect ratio from widescreen mm. 2.3.92 to, to a kind of i filling the screen i thought uh, the, so that added i love an aspect ratio change <laughs> that added to the whole excitement Maybe of it the as nerdiest well. thing you've ever I, said but yes <laughs> yeah love an aspect I ratio love, change I absolutely do. I loved every minute of it. I thought it was phenomenal, and um, I can't wait to see the rest of it. But this is a high bar. I think they really came back strong. Um, it's just incredibly entertaining. I know that phrase, you know, the tonic we all need in these times, is all those cliches, but it really fucking is the tonic we need in these times. <laughs> Terry. So, you know what? I had this when we when we reviewed the first season, which is I absolutely loved it and then dropped it like a hot potato never to pick it up again, um, as I want to do. Um, and I watched this this morning and I just loved every minute of it. And I really wanted them to go back and watch everything that had ever been made in the Star Wars universe ever, because it does have lovely echoes back and lovely bits of granular detail that we're going to absolutely set on fire the mega weirdo geek fans hello james dyer <laughs> um but also it's totally accessible to somebody who's never seen a star wars film at the same time and i know i think i said this last time but it's an extraordinary thing to be able to pull off I mean, and the way it looks, boys, it's impeccable. The detail in how this world is rendered is just extraordinary. And the ambition in each and every scene, it opens on this, um, with this uh, set piece that is like, it could have been a third act set piece and they open with it and you get another one at the end, which could have been the third act of a movie. Like there is no skimping on any of it and they do a lovely job of balancing the violence. Bearing in mind it is Disney Plus, the violence with these moments of slapstick that there's something at the beginning where it's there's these gorgeous moments of physical comedy that really undercut what otherwise may be arguably a little bit too violent. Um, and... There's some incredible, I mean, the creatures we've got this time around just look extraordinary. Um, and there's a really interesting flashback, which actually kind of speaks to the narrative that's being served in The Mandalorian, which is you've got the events of um, Return of the Jedi with the Death Star exploding. But what you've never thought about in Star Wars history is, well, what happens to people on the edges of the galaxy, what happens to people who aren't the kind of main narrative heroes? How does it affect people in those outer reaches? And we see, the outer we've rim, seen this in actually, some of the, Terry. I think, the outer, I think sorry, you'll find. The outer rim. <laughs> well, and we've seen I think you'll find. Recent, I think you'll find. We've seen this in recent Star Wars movies, right? Which is 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 what about the people 
the everyday people, the people who are just trying to like get by in life and aren't the big narrative cinematic heroes. And that makes it weirdly interesting for modern times, as does all of the stuff that we know is in there, the tribalism, difference, prejudices, all these themes that have actually been part of Star Wars historically. And then you watch The Mandalorian in the current climate and it feels really incisive and really interesting and really modern. Um, And it is, I mean, this one was 55 minutes, we should say. And obviously we know from season one that they do vary in length. Um, I love the fact that they vary them in length depending on what the episodes need. As Boyd said, this Mm. is a self-contained, you've got your adventure or challenge of the week or however you want to describe it. And it does have a resolution of kind at the end, um, even though there's obviously continuing threads which form the entire arc of the season. But... I just think that it's the ambition, the scale, the scope, the heart. Baby Yoda <laughs> is exactly like my son. It's so weird. It's like freaking me out. And um, <laughs> I just thought this is this is so beautifully done. And I tell you what you know from watching this. Favreau, holy shit. Is there a man mm. in the universe, apart from you, James Dyer, that loves the Star Wars universe more? The love and affection. Um, and tenderness and detail with which he renders this world. And it's really lovely to be in a world created by a man who has so much love and respect and reverence for the source material. I think you feel it in every single scene. I really do. As Boyd said, John Favreau, in fact, directs this episode as well as writes. It's the first time he's directed an episode, and uh, and and yeah, it's like I love this. I love the westernness of it. I love the um, the fact that he literally rides into town, uh, and you know, you've got the sort of the people standing in the doorways of their little houses looking out, and it could be from you know any Clint Eastwood film. As Boyd, as you said, you know, it's very, very, very western vibed. Um, my favorite episode, I think, from season one, I really enjoyed. I'm possibly episode two, which was a, a little one, but it was this silent one with the jawas you remember that one with the mud horn and i think this one shares a yeah, lot of dna yeah. with that one yes um and i yes. loved i loved a lot of what when we won't go into the story of it in case you haven't seen it yet but it is so well done there's so much money on screen and i will say there are an incredible number of references like star wars references pretty fucking niche ones in some cases but some really yeah. really great references in this episode again i'm not going to go into them here so listen to the empire spoiler special podcast if you want all of that but a lot happens and it feels and it has the texture of, and it has the quality, and it has a sort of lavish production values of a Star Wars movie. And I think there's just something delightful about being able to sit down and watch this, whether you're a Star Wars fan or not. I mean, I have very little patience generally for procedural formats and, and not just procedurals but also shows that tit about and never get on with the main plot like they you have a lot of sort of quicksand episodes where you're just meandering around just killing time for a few episodes before you get on with the story that you actually care about and these are the things that almost annoy me most in television yet with the mandalorian the kind of adventure of the week stuff is so fucking good so well conceived and so well executed mm. that it almost doesn't matter and actually i think the the small dramas the small individual episode moments are weirdly more compelling than the overall narrative in this because the overall narrative is he's trying to get the child back to its people but actually we don't really want that to happen because you want the child to hang about so i'm not at all invested in the overall plot at all yeah. i don't even want it to resolve i just want to see them day to day doing things and for me that is extremely unusual and it's like it's weirdly 
it's almost a moment you have in retrospect when you look at the X-Files where people would say, oh, the X-Files, you were always waiting for the plot-centric ones, the ones, you know, related to the overall conspiracy. It's like, yeah, okay, that's true, but they were actually the worst episodes. The best ones were the perfectly conceived, individual, standalone, beautiful little constructs that they used to make. And I think the same is true of this. Like, focus on the on the sort of micro, not the macro. Uh, but either way, either way, it is awesome. Um and as I have said at least five times now, do listen to the Empire Spoiler Special podcast where we will go into this in excruciating detail. Uh, the Mandalorian is, of course, available on Disney+. Plus. As of this podcast going out, episode one is available. Episode two will be dropping this Friday. Next up this week... Serial, week by week. Yes, week by week. Yes, week by yes, week, Boyd, which better. is, which is better? Not, not better on better? any level. Although, actually, actually, Boyd, do you know what? For this show, yeah. I think you're absolutely right. Yes. Yes. yes, because but because it is more standalone, I think it lends itself much better to this format. I think shows with a yeah. very clear through line don't, but this does. Yeah, and just the deferred gratification mm. is people, you know, you have to have this treat every, once a week, every Friday. It's perfect. Also, Friday. Baby Yoda's weaponized cuteness. I think there's only so much of that you can take in one sitting. I don't know if I can. I might yeah. sort of like yeah, be I agree, reduced yeah. to a mass on the floor if I had like eight hours of Baby Yoda in a yeah. day. But... Um, so anyway, that is on Disney Plus now. Go watch it. Next up this week is The Vow. This is HBO's nine-part documentary about sex cult Nexium, which apart from using slightly upsetting spelling, also sucked many people, including a number of celebrities, into its cult-like self-help groups. Uh, it was later exposed for coercing women into becoming sex slaves and branding them with the initials of the cult's leader, Keith Ranieri, as well as those of, and I'm absolutely serious, Chloe from Smallville. Bonkers. But true. Terry, what did you make of this? So, um, this is kind of, it's, it's timed with it being back in the news because um, Keith Ranieri, who was the cult leader of Nexium, has been sentenced to 120 years in prison. He was found guilty last year of felony after felony, racketeering, sex trafficking. Um, he'd always claimed that his sexual encounters with his followers were completely consensual. Um, obviously, that was proven not to be the case. This hit the headlines, though, really, um, because, as you say, it had these weird links to Hollywood. Um, there was a uh, woman in it who was in Star Wars. There it's was, Aunt as Baru. you say, Alison. It's fucking odd, Baroo. <laughs> but there was Alison Mack from Smallville, and you had these, and that was why it got so much coverage initially because you know it was they were also well Alison Mack um ended up striking a plea deal but were involved in this in in the criminal case and so you've got this incredibly mad 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 by any mm. stretch of the imagination this is a bonkers batshit <laughs> story um and so the interesting thing is how that content pairs with a HBO approach, because this is very much a HBO documentary. Um, and we should talk about um, the filmmakers behind it, because that is really incredibly relevant in terms of how this um, documentary runs over the nine hours. The whole thing's directed by Jahane Nujaim and Kareen Ammer who were behind The Great Hack, which is obviously one of the most talked about and I think credible documentaries of recent years. Now, this is really interesting because you have this mad, explosive, very salacious in many respects, tabloidy story, which is of a sex cult, which is of these um, Hollywood actresses somehow um, part of the actual criminality behind it. And what's interesting about the first episode is that in parts it feels incredibly 
dry. Um, and what I'd say, first of all, is watch past the first episode. Don't give up at the first episode because what the first episode does is a very good job of showing how you become embroiled in a cult. Because somebody says, you know, it's not like somebody comes up to you and goes, hey, do you want to be part of a cult? Like, that's not how it happens. You become part of something and then you get sucked in and, and it becomes something else. And I think what this does is it does a really good job of showing how that happens because initially this is couched as an executive Mm. success program right and really what it shows is how do you get from something that is pitched at kind of middle managers um it's like an instagram self-improvement kind of vibe which is it's a very big thing at the moment which is all about self-improvement it's about being um your best self the whole world of betterment and um individual responsibility for your own success and so a lot of the messaging when you first hear them talking about it and it interviews people who were previously in the cult and who kind of left but it's also got a huge amount of primary footage. And that primary footage is mainly from kind of these training videos, from videos that were made of them actually running sessions. Um, it, there's telephone calls they recorded. There's an incredible amount of actual material mm. that shows how they indoctrinated people. So you have these weird videos that are quite low rent. Half the time these sessions are taking place in a bloody local holiday inn. Um, And there's something kind of interesting about the kind of ordinariness of what it started out as. And the first episode very clearly plots how they put this program together, the different elements of the program and how they kind of articulated that to people and used that to get people in. So in the first episode, it very much focuses around Sarah Edmondson and Mark Vicenti. Who, are, who end up becoming two of the kind of leaders. And it's very much a, their story of how they become involved. And it's only as the episode progresses and you learn more about their stories and you start to see hints about what the cult did to their personal lives that you feel the more dramatic elements coming in. So Mark, for example, he married um, a woman, Bonnie, um, who we talked about from Star Wars, who um, they, she was also in this organisation. And clearly it becomes apparent that this caused real problems between them. And once you get to see the more um, human elements, it becomes super, super, super interesting So you may feel when you first start watching this that it's a bit dry, it doesn't really go very fast, that it doesn't seem, you've got all these headlines in your mind and it doesn't seem to be anywhere close to what you've probably read about. Um, But it shows how a very basic kind of proposition of self-improvement that we are going to help you become a better version of you how that can be the seeds for actually what ends up being incredibly predatory um, and criminal. And that I find fascinating about it. I find I found the kind of exposing of that whole scene, which seems very harmless, um, how that can be used and weaponized against people and allow them to be exploited um, kind of down the line. So I've watched two episodes of this. Episode two really starts to get into the meat of the stuff we're more familiar with. Um, and it's, you know, it's shot. There is there is new footage, obviously, of them being interviewed. There's a weird kind of thing where you see, like, the back, a bit of the back of the interviewer, which, which kind of threw me at first because I wasn't quite sure 
what the decision was behind that from a filmmaking perspective. But what I thought this did really well is the amount of primary footage, which often isn't the case, you're often just relying on new interviews and talking head stuff, the amount of audio, the amount of video, and the careful, slow way they plot this. In a world of instant gratification, you may get bored, but stick with it because all of that groundwork, I think, is essential to to understanding where they end up. And I think it's credit to the filmmakers that they take their time and do this carefully because there is a very different version of this documentary where you've got Smallville sex school and you kind of go all in on uh, on those elements and you really ramp it up and you make it super tabloid and you kind of rinse it for every single one of those salacious details you can. This feels to me like a proper attempt to understand how women especially can be exploited through this kind of facade of self-improvement um, and how the gender dynamics within that um, really allowed these women to be exploited and these men to be in these positions where they um, are preying on vulnerable women. It's very interesting because that you that how you've how you've described this the slow burn, if you like, of the the narrative of this series because there have been loads of there are loads of TV documentaries made about the Nexium cult. So there was an investigation discovery two hour special. There was an e true Hollywood story, which is very much as you described the tabloidy version, which I've actually seen, and that was my first awareness of the Nexium thing was in an e true Hollywood story episode, which is jaw dropping um, in itself. Stars Play has just um, put its documentary series, which is a four parter, um, and that's on um, called Seduced Inside the Nexium Cult, and that is very much focused on Catherine Oxenberg and her daughter, Catherine Oxenberg, the dynasty actress, um, and her daughter India, who's involved in the group, and they they became estranged, and that and that, but that's but that tells. And I, so I I watched the first episode of that, and if you want the pacey. I wouldn't say exploitative, but the, the, if you want the pacey version, that this these are the facts, this is the situation, this is why it's a cult, this is why it's a bit like Scientology mixed with about eight other different um, religious cults um, over the years, then it's a very interesting kind of sidebar to this series. Um, but equally, I do think this is like the, this feels like the heavyweight um uncompromising slow burn version um very much as you say kind of the the filmmaking is very hbo down to you know the very lavish title sequence and the music and everything it's very much um almost done as a drama as a drama miniseries as in kind of thing it's already been recommissioned by the way for another series because obviously it's still in the news um with, with uh ranieri just be, just being censored as we said to 120 years and still by the way in contact with with many of the women, apparently, from mm. prison. He's communicating still with a lot of the women who, who were involved with, with him and in, in the cult. And using mafia-like tactics was, to reach out as well. Like, it's, yeah. it's all a bit sinister. Right. But I'm obsessed. The bottom line is I'm obsessed with 
these kinds of cults. I'm obsessed with Scientology. I've watched, I think I've probably watched every single documentary and read quite a few of the books about Scientology. I find the whole thing horrifying and terrifying. And I find it, I, I, I cannot get my head around how people can fall for these things. And, and when you see the granular detail, as you do in the in this HBO series, and as as Terry describes, it it brilliantly doesn't it doesn't do the thing that begins with the flashback of you know <laughs> oh he's, he's he's being tried. It starts at the very 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 it beginning does, yeah. for these people, and it shows you how. And it, I was fascinated by the fact that the way in is that they ask you about your fears and phobias, and they cure those phobias. But of course, that's one of the basic basic elements of 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 psychotherapy and counseling you can overcome your fear that's a, it's like it, this morning does it practically every week <laughs> you know they have therapists on this morning enabling you to deal with your fears it's easy it's not difficult and yet the people on this first episode who describe how that's what led them in are like be, are like they're like oh my god i can't believe they managed to help us to sort out our fears and phobias well yeah any you know any trained person knows what they're doing can do that but then they're lured in and it is that luring in process and that slow realization and and they and they kind of over the, the scarves that you mentioned the fact that you know this messianic god complex fucking twat i mean the least the least word i could describe him the leader of it all and his assistant and the, the you know the the moronic nonsense that is coming out with the fact that they are they kind of perfectly intelligent filmmakers and actors and people of all walks of life, doctors. Mm. Richard Branson goes to one of the fucking retreats, etc. I mean, obviously, you know, he's, he's a doofus. But anyway, <laughs> people drawn in by this thing. It's, I find it endlessly fascinating. And this series is, it's, you know, I, I, I'm going to watch every single episode because I need to know in every detail. So the, the HBO one is the detail. I would say if you do want a quick guide to everything, all, all of it in, in putting a context of um, these cults because there's a lot of people in the Stars Play version, cult experts talking about it. I think it's very interesting the links they literally like almost like Ranier studied Elron Hubbard and Scientology to work out how to fleece people with this bullshit thing that he's created. Um, and it's disturbing and terrifying. Um, but I think the HBO thing, what it does so brilliantly is it does show you the process. And 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 if you're like me and you do find it mystifying how people can be taken in, I think the, what the HBO series is doing really well is showing you that process and explaining it as, as much as it ever could. See, the question I would ask you there, Boyd, is does this need to be nine hours long? Like, it feels extremely well, indulgent. Like, I get what they're trying to do. The, the thing they've got here is they've got incredible access to people and footage. So they have a shit ton of amazing material. And I think because of that, they've gone for this granular, detailed approach to it. But certainly, I mean, and Terry alluded to this, I only watched the first episode, but I was properly bored by the end of it. Like, it's so slow. I mean, it's not that it isn't interesting, because it is. And I know a decent amount about this, thanks to Wikipedia. But, you know, it's interesting in the way, as you both said, like how it portrays how easy it is to get sucked into these things, how right-minded people who would describe themselves as sceptical and sort of, you know, resilient to these things were sucked in because it had this veneer of respectability and legitimacy and that it was a sort of a, an executive focused self-help group so you didn't go in thinking oh this is the moonies it's a crazy cult you went in thinking oh this is like it like people get sucked in by that and then this other thing the vow as they called it, i think there was another name for it as well this this other layer to the group was this weird sex cult we having people's initials branded into you you know it's kind of nuts but on the face of it it was just a weird self-help group where people were obsessed with getting different colored scarves like it's a really odd thing um so there's a lot to unpack and it gets more and more insane 
And there's so much, you know, that they could have led with that's glossy. And I mean, we've already talked about, you know, Alison Mack, who became not just a part of the superficial thing, but was really involved in the sex cult side of it. I mean, she's awaiting sentencing at the moment. You know, we're not going to get a Smallville reunion anytime soon. I can tell you that. Like, Kristen Crook was involved. There's footage of her in there. But again, where your priorities lie. Yeah, exactly, exactly that. But yeah. Kristen Crook was involved in this. But more than that, you know, Boomer, uh, Grace Park from Battlestar Galactica was in there. And uh, Callie from Battlestar Galactica, Nikki Klein. And I had no idea until I read up on this. She leaves Battlestar Galactica spoiler she gets flushed out of an airlock but she leaves Battlestar Galactica because she broke her contract with the show she asked to leave so that she could devote herself to Nexium full time like she quit Battlestar Galactica to become a more a deep more sort of deeply embedded in this cult and is still for tools and mental purposes a part of it like they still they do these dancing protests outside the court and outside the prison where where Ranieri is held like it is just bonkers so there's a lot here but i just can't help feeling that nine hours is a lot to ask of people's time for this story i kind of feel you know surely this is a really really solid three-hour documentary and maybe that's well, what you, i wanted I, I recommend you should watch the you should watch the stars yeah. play so version because that's what literally <laughs> those are like me with a short attention span the I other mean, one's the way to go yeah 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 um and, and it's not and it's a perfectly good you know, a series, by the way. But I do. I, I'm very grateful that this. I wasn't bored. I think it is a deliberate slow burn. As yeah. I keep using that phrase. I think it's a deep dive, and I think all of that is. And I think there is more than enough material for the nine hours and the second season, by the way, which I mentioned. So it's going to be in the end probably eighteen hours. I, I, I as I said, I've only seen two episodes, but I think from what I've seen so far, I understand why the story is going to take as long as it is. And I, I'm with Boyd. I think that is the way that these stories should be told. This quick fix of like, you know, oh, it's somebody famous, slap their face on it, get straight into the deep dive, sticky bits of that and and kind of fuck how it all happens. Surely the point of these things is to, is to enable us as a society to talk about how these things can even happen in the first place and who's vulnerable from these things and where do they come from in the first place? How do seemingly normal, successful, middle-class people end up in a sex cult where they're fleecing people and trafficking people? I mean, it's absolutely insane. And yet it starts from such ordinary beginnings. And that is what makes it fascinating. And I think that's what justifies the approach they've taken um, as a document, multi-episode documentary and multi-series from what Boyd says. Okay, fine. Well, I pr- probably will not be pressing on with this, but should you wish to, The Vow is arriving on Sky Documentaries on Saturday. Finally, this week, we have His Dark Material Season 2, the continuation of the BBC's adaptation of the renowned Philip Pullman trilogy. Uh, This second season tackles the second book, The Subtle Knife, and continues the adventures of Lyra and Pantaloman as they explore an alternate reality, only one without J.K. Simmons in this instance. Boyd, you and Terry insisted that my demon would be some kind of patronising giraffe, I seem to recall, from uh, from episode one. So... (laughs) So be, both me and Jerry are here to talk about the show. So uh, what did you and your demons think of season two? Do you know what? If I'm honest about um, his dark materials, I think I got very excited about it when it arrived and um, I, I really liked it to begin with. I think there were some issues. I had some issues a little bit with the the child acting, to be honest, which is a hard thing when you've got, you know, you've got young young characters at the heart of this story. And I thought there was a kind of certain variable quality to to some of the acting early on 
in um the in the first series and i also think the way they they have grappled a little bit with the way the books are huge big these are huge big sprawling epics they're quite different if you, for example to the harry potter books i know in the end you know jk rowling wrote epic long harry potter books but they were much more focused i think the harry potter books in a way the 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 his dark materials books as i read the i read the first two um were incredible but they do they they do they're dealing with huge big ideas and philosophy and politics and religion and at the same time have a multitude of characters a multitude of worlds and multi you know the multiverses all of that it's a bigger thing to grapple with and to hone into kind of bites of television if you like and um I thought Jack Thorne, the writer, did a pretty good job, but I did it did tail off for me. I have to say, the first series, I, I think I slightly lost interest a little bit in the middle. I kind of went back to it in the end, but I. But the good news is, I thought this. I thought I've watched the first two episodes of this of this second season. I think they've really ratcheted it up for me. I think they've done, and it's almost like imperceptible. But I feel like it's much more feels much more confident bold i mean it was always you know it, it was always very lavish and um looks great and all of that but i think in the in the storytelling and in the kind of detail of it and i think particularly it helps the fact that you've got in this now lyra um uh played by daphne Keane, who i think is just i think she's just improved um as an actor um you know who i just feel like now she's really really um having a good time and she now bonds with will Parry, played by Amir Wilson. And now there's these two young people at the centre of the story. And the first episode kind of starts with them getting to know each other and kind of forming a team. And I, I think that's immediately helping the story kind of bowl along. And at the same time, it cuts between you know, what's happening in the bigger kind of politics of the universe that it's dealing with. And um, I think that, you know, in the magisterium, um, what's happening there, it's kind of bold and interesting dealing with, you know, the idea of witches and Non and non-believers and people who want to are investigating um, outside worlds and kind of challenging the mythology that the this kind of if you like government of this world the magisterium doesn't want to deal with and there's loads of stuff about religion and politics that I think is absolutely fascinating and is done really well and um, Ruth Wilson every single scene she's in <laughs> she is incredible magnificent as this kind of manipulative horrendous um miss coulter figure and i think she's phenomenal watch and the stuff she does so this goes out eight o'clock on a sunday on bbc one and it is obviously partly for it's a it's a ya it's for young people it's you know it's for i think 10 11 12 year olds are gonna watch this thing it's quite harsh it's quite there's basically torture going on in the first episode um with ruth wilson's um miss coulter and it's and it's pretty no holds barred i would say but i think it has to be that way i think it's got that that confidence that Doctor Who has when it goes really dark, that it will go there and it won't compromise because Philip Pullman's vision is has some, some pretty weighty, difficult, challenging things to deal with. So I think they're doing a really good job. And I thought, um, I thought episode two was even better than episode one. And we haven't even got to... Slight spoiler alert, but it's not really. We haven't even got to the arrival of Andrew Scott's character yet, which I think happens in episode three, and I'm really looking forward to that because that's he's going to be magnificent, I'm sure. So I am. I think this feels like a step up to me from series one, and loads of people love series one, and I think they'll, they'll absolutely love series two. I watched the first couple of episodes, obviously, of season one when we reviewed it, and then never went anywhere near it again because, because you're you. I didn't care. And the, but I didn't. I, I also I was kind of like it looks great, it's whatever, but it wasn't for me. It's definitely not a um, a Terry show. So 
trying to watch season two, episode one, with no knowledge of what happened in uh, season one, <laughs> any of the episodes after one and two, was quite the challenge. So my observations are thus. Uh, Daphne Keane, she's good. Um, so I really liked her in... I think she's great. I loved her in Logan. I think she's a phenomenal child actor. I can't remember um, whether I thought she was good or bad in the first one. Probably good. Um, seems to have nice chemistry with Amy Wilson. Um, those two kids together. Ruth Wilson is absolutely terrifying and manipulative and hot and uh, incredible. She's just magic whenever she's on screen. But I couldn't really tell you anything that was happening um, or what was going on or anything about the book it's based on or Jack Storm's writing or uh, anything. So, yeah. Wow. Good. That's good. excellent insight, Terry. Thank you very much for that contribution. Um, I have a confession to make. I didn't watch you it. You watch it. But I didn't watch it. I, I mean, deliberately didn't, didn't watch it, though. Like, I'm... I'm, I'm had no intention of watching it, mainly because uh, it's very much on my list to watch His Dark Materials properly, and I haven't finished season one. So I didn't feel that I could, in good conscience, jump into season two and ruin my enjoyment of the show. Oh, dear. <laughs> so unfortunately, I have refused to watch it in protest because I, I want to watch it properly. I have read the first few books, one of these things. So that trilogy of books, which are uh, which are sort of renowned as being amazing, I read when they first came out. I read the first two, and I never read the third one. So um, at some point, I should oh, probably same. go back and do that. Oh, you never read the yeah, third one? I did the same Because it's kind of a freaky thing that like no. everyone thinks i'm nuts when i say that because the third one is like the climax no yeah but i and i don't know what happened i think i maybe just got a bit lost yeah i, don't, I can't believe i cannot believe you haven't literally watched one of the three <laughs> only three shows we're doing for personal I'm the reasons worst. i am the worst you just you played by I mean, your I own watched rules it and I didn't yeah even, know what, even what terry's the fuck watched was it happening. yeah i mean you are you are mad you're a loser because i was talent. like i get bollocks <laughs> Yeah. Why am I watching this when yeah. I have no clue what's happening? I'll get bollocked by James. What the flying? People are going to be like, why isn't James held forth? Yeah. They're not going to notice. No, no, so, James, what did I'm you think? I'm not cutting any of this. I'm keeping it oh, in. You're keeping this in? I'm keeping it in. Yeah. I'm fussing up to it 100%. I did not watch it uh, because I wish to watch it properly all the way through and I haven't finished season one. Here's the thing. Why don't you Why don't you not catch up on some show that came out <laughs> 10 years ago and watch that every day and watch this thing that we're reviewing this I mean, week? you make a valid point that would have been the more professional thing to do wouldn't it? <sighs> exhausted but counterpart's really exhausted. good i don't know what to tell you anyway here's dark materials season two hits bbc one this sunday at eight o'clock of the p.m so what would our pick of the week be oh the mandalorian oh yes yeah yes. The Mandalorian. i think that's fair but the veil's really good as well and so is his dark materials <laughs> There are. It's a good week. It's the opposite of last week. What else is out this week that we've missed, boys? I wouldn't say it's a good week. I wouldn't say it's a good week. There's um, there's bits and pieces. Godfather of Harlem is on Stars Play. Do you know about nope. that? Which um, use, uses um, people who are featured in Ridley Scott's American Gangster film and kind of expands on mm. them, and including Malcolm X pops up. So it's kind of dramatisation of of what was going on with crime in the sixties. Forest Whitaker's in it. it. Looks quite a good show. So that is going to be that's on Stars Play. Godfather of Harlem. Um, it will be, I think, by the time we come out on Monday. There is, um, oh, you know what? There is this thing called Trackers on Sky Atlantic and Now TV on Friday, which is based on Dion Mayer's crime novel. I think it's a South African series, um, but it looks quite kind of big. It looks like a kind of big action gangster thing. Friday, Sky Atlantic. 
Um, Zach Galifianakis' series Baskets is back on today, Monday on Fox. Um, and Black Monday, which which I actually watched some of um, the first season with um, Andrew Rannells and lots of good people. That is back on Tuesday on Sky Comedy. Okay, okay. Good stuff. Okay, let us have a quick Banshee segment before we go. This, of course, if you are new to the podcast, is the section where we look back at old shows that are no longer on and recommend them for you. Uh, so named after the Jonathan Tropper show, Banshee. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be incredibly on brand and say, I can't believe I've never done this before. Someone on Twitter alerted me to the fact I've never done it. Uh, Frank Herbert's Dune, which is perhaps the most me thing to ever Banshee. Now, Dune, the film, Denny Villeneuve's Dune, which I was very excited about has been pushed now a whole year when arriving until Christmas 2021. However, that does not mean that you cannot enjoy some Arrakis goodness in the meantime, uh, by which I mean go back to the year 2000, where this this sci-fi miniseries, Frank Herbert's Dune, adapted that first of Frank Herbert's books. Um, and William Hurt is in it, uh, Alec Newman in it, is in it as Paul Atreides, and it is a, let's be honest, modestly budgeted i think the whole thing costs like 20 million dollars recreation of that most epic books i mean if you, you can't compare this to what denny villeneuve is going to do to it also it's 20 years old so the effects are properly ropey and they use a really slightly odd thing like the fremen in dune have bright bright cobalt blue eyes so instead of using a computer effect, they seem to have given them contact lenses that fluoresce under ultraviolet light. So you just see them with these lenses on. They're obviously waving these ultraviolet lights off screen to make their eyes light up. So it's strange, and it gives them double pupils. It's very, very bizarre. But this it's actually, like if you compare this to David Lynch's movie adaptation of Dune, this is a much more faithful retelling of the story. It's actually really good in that it covers off all the detail. You get a lot of the nuance in there. The acting's a bit ropey. The costume design is in places absolutely shocking and the effects you do get the sense that it's a bit of a you know cardboard studio set some of the time but generally speaking it is very very good so i kind of would recommend it i would also recommend if you enjoy frank herbert's dune to pick up another one which is uh, children of dune which was the follow-up series that sci-fi did and this is based on the second and third books dune messiah and children of dune and it tells the complete story of paul atreides these two series back together but children of dune is notable because it has james mcavoy in it as leto atreides so that's kind of a you know and susan sarandon's in it as well so um it's got some some pretty good cast in it so if you have a tolerance for shitty special effects sci-fi uh, and great stories i highly recommend frank herbert's dune and frank herbert's children of dune neither of which are streaming or available to buy from what i can gather anywhere but they are available on dvd so you can probably pick those up off amazon <laughs> or from any of your secondhand purveyors of entertainment i'm gonna do uh one uh, suggested by michael jones to me on twitter and um, i was thinking of doing it anyway and then i checked the spreadsheet because i was thinking i must have banshee this already i uh, checked the spreadsheet and what it turned out was that tom ellis when we had tom ellis on our very special guest for that episode he banshee ah. it so that i feel like i can still banshee <laughs> it because he might banshee it but that's fine and um it is of course bob and rose and the reason why um it's noteworthy now is because this is russell t davis's follow-up in a way to queer as folk uh, his his six-part series that came out in 2001 on itv and it's arrived on britbox and that is noteworthy because it's never been available on any streaming service or any, it's never been repeated on any channel since it went out. And Russell T. Davis talked about this on his Instagram and he was talking about how um, it hasn't been available all these years and it's very exciting it has been. And the reason why it hasn't been available is because of music rights. Oh, really? 
And he was explaining that, yeah, that, and this, he said it happens a lot, that a lot of that shows, if you think of a classic show, any show that we've banned shoes that doesn't seem to be around on any streaming service now, it's probably because the music rights weren't sorted out so that you have in, per- in per- perpetuity the right the rights to those particular songs mm. or whatever that were featured in the original. So what they've done with this Bob and Rose is it's quite a process. They've gone back and made sure they've taken out any music they don't have the rights to and put in something else. There's even a scene in the in, in it's all about a gay man played by Alan Davis falling in love with a woman played by Leslie Sharp. And there's a scene in this where there's a football match in the background that they re- reference to and they don't have the rights to that football match and they had to take that out. So they work quite hard on these things. They don't just kind of plonk it on a streaming service and then go, oh, everything's fine. They have to really work hard of it, especially when there's all these rights issues involved. But the bottom line is this was a brilliant, brilliant series bold idea of having the central character of a gay man who falls in love with a woman and he's not supposed to be bisexual or anything he identifies as a gay man and and Leslie Sharp and Alan Davis are brilliant in it, Jessica Hines is in it, Katie Cavan is in it, Penelope Wilton's in it it's got a brilliant cast, it's got it, it ends up dealing with political activism in a way which I think is the theme that goes through all of Russell T Davis's work right up until his new thing that's coming soon um, it's just got his unmistakable wit and narrative drive and it's great and um, it's really exciting that it's back on BritBox so if you've got BritBox this is a very very good reason to get it if you haven't got it already Noted Terry um, I want to do Cardinal Burns Okay Oh yeah Yes um, James let me preface this by saying you will hate every oh, single good. minute this is a um, sketch show that ran 2012 to 2014 interestingly the pilot went out on BBC3 but then it actually moved to E4 and Channel 4 for its proper that series is interesting. um Yes, two, two seasons. Um, Seb Cardinal and Dustin Demery Burns, um, pair of comedians. They also did it as a touring show. Um, so this is also you've got to remember when this was kind of you know final days of loaded and maybe kind of lad culture, and it kind of spoofs that lad culture, but also I think the beginning of um, the reality scene and and anybody being a celeb that that notion of what celebrity is, who can be famous, um, is all kind of in there because there's stuff like a spoof interview show called I Know Your Name, um, where they quiz basically nobody like they're a glamorous successful famous celebrity which actually could be on any any show seriously these days um and some of it's really really fucking stupid and daft um but i quite like it there's one where there's like two um city boys who basically jump into a rope skipping comp- um, competition which doesn't like sound funny but it is there's there's these boy band members who have like a penis on their face um <laughs> for no apparent reason there's a whole Royal Mail sketch where it's like the Crystal Maze back in there trying to get a package. So it's not like the, the observations are always like necessarily that original even, but there's something so wantonly, ridiculously daft about some of it that I really enjoy. And the, it's, the tone is kind of um, goes a little bit dark sometimes. Um so, and some of these are definitely more missed than hit. Hit the miss, yeah. Some of them are definitely more missed than hit. Um, and the actually, the ensemble cast had people like Bridget Christie, Ashling B, 
Um, so there was a whole kind of British comedy crew around this. And it kind of, I think it got named one of the Guardian's kind of funniest co- British comedies. Um, I think it was nominated for a BAFTA, but it only lasted for two seasons. Those two seasons are on for OD if you want to go and check it out. Is 4OD the same as all four? It's all, it's four. all four. All yeah. four. All four. Yeah. All four. It's all on four. I think you'll find it's, it's, it's all four. It's all four. Yes. But let, I, I loved. I loved Cardinal Burns as well. Yeah, it was great. It was brilliant. Yeah. Do you remember? Um, Seb Cardinal was in Sally Forever. Do you remember? And, That's what um, I was, I was yeah. yeah. And I said it was Dustin Demery Burns yeah. on this podcast, and he's and he DM'd me on Twitter to say actually it was me. Totally. <laughs> yeah, I got the wrong one. But um, they're both fucking brilliant. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. And that is it for another episode of the Pilot TV Podcast. If you're American and you voted to give Trump a second term, then please head over to Apple Podcasts and make amends by giving us a five-star rating. Then sit down in a corner and have a good long think about what it is you've done. Uh, if you wish to follow us on social media, I am at James C. Dyer. Terry is Terry underscore White. And Boyd is at Boyd Hilton. Uh, we'll be back next week with the new season of The Crown, as we mentioned earlier. And yes, I do realise that I said last week that we'd be doing it in today's show, but you can all blame Boyd for that because I got the date wrong and he... <laughs> didn't correct me. See you next week. Pilot out.